Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, our text this morning will be verses 10 through 19 as we work through this chapter section by section. Now, just to remember where we are in the context here, that Jesus is here continuing His response to the disciples' question regarding the coming events. They have asked previously in this chapter, because Jesus has, first of all, indicated that Jerusalem's destruction is going to take place. So they've responded to that in here in Luke chapter 21, verse 7 Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, we have given prior consideration the last time we were here in this chapter in verses 7 through 9. We gave consideration to what we described as days of trouble and those who were deniers of truth and the design of triumph that is set forth that these things must take place. They are by God's divine design. They are not haphazardly taking place. That they are part of God's purpose. They must take place. Place. And so Jesus here continues by giving more details, beginning in here, verse number 10 through again, verse 19. So follow along with me in the reading of the scripture. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, admittedly, interpreting the contents of Luke chapter 21 and also Matthew chapter 24, this becomes something of a theological hot button for many people. And sad to say, on, on the many parts, a particular interpretation becomes a test of fellowship. And I would assure you that that is not the case in my heart. And I'm very grateful that historically the Reformed churches have allowed for diversity in the stances one may take regarding end-time, last-days events. Uh, we even find in our confession, as well as you would in the Westminster Standards, that 
there are broad generalities and little in specifics because we do not require someone to, to adhere to a particular viewpoint regarding last times. And simply the reason being that there are good and godly men in different places on these things. And so we do not regard it to be a matter of, of separation, of course, nor to be a matter that we make a great deal of because, again, we recognize that people are in different places. When I was at Covenant Seminary, for example, there you have the National Seminary of the PCA, and the staff members were there were generally in three different positions regarding their, their view of end times. There were among them historical pre-mills. There were among them all-mills. There were among them post-mills. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. <laughs> no great concern. But just to say that even within the context of a denomination, that there is a, a diversity that is allowed. And I think it's a healthy diversity that we must allow. And it's a reminder to us that we must exercise care and great caution in applying exact fulfillments of the Scriptures in dealing with such things. Now, we're dealing with a text here that touches on a period of time from Christ's ascension to His return. And some have held that everything here can, in fact, be placed to before 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. Some have insisted that it's almost in its entirety with that which is, except for that which is clearly referring to Jerusalem, that it is almost in its entirety futuristic. It's to be viewed as end times, end of the end times. And I think what we must see here in our text today, that there is the, there is the immediate application in the days of Jesus' disciples, but throughout this there are these overtures and overtones to a fuller to a fuller fulfillment of these things. So, again, we go through here carefully and cautiously, and we must demonstrate humility and avoid a spirit of dogmatism on those things which are uncertain and extend charity to those who may differ on the particulars. I know it may sound like I'm getting ready to go through the book of Revelation, but I'm not. But this is, again, the, the issues of this chapter here in Luke 21 and also with Matthew 24 are interpreted in a variety of ways. Now, in reading chapter 21, as I've said, there, is a, there seems to be this back and forth flux, fluctuation from the first century, from the time of Jesus' disciples to later times in the church age. He does tell us in verse 12 that there is something of a chronology here. He says in verse 12 that before these things, in other words, the events that are described in verses 10 and 11 are going to be preceded by the things that are recorded for us in verse 12. So there is a chronological order here that is given. We also are aware that descriptions of some of these events are somewhat timeless. 
In other words, they are, they are things that they may have an immediate application in the context of the first century disciples, but they, we also see that these are things that are true throughout the New Testament church age. In particular, the persecutions that are addressed in our text here are typical of the believers of any age. So again, as we come to our text here, verses 10 and following, we are reminded here that it is Jesus Himself that does speak of these things. So we must consider them. It is Jesus who describes these things to come. And so we want to consider what He gives to us here as the marks of the coming days. And what are the marks that He gives here for His disciples and likewise for us? First of all, they are days of perilous occurrences. They are days of perilous occurrences. And we touched on this truth in the previous text in verse 9 a couple of weeks ago. When it says that you hear wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And then he speaks of, in our text here, this descriptive of this New Testament church age that's marked by upheavals of two sorts. First of all, there are those that I would call man-made. They originate from the activities of man. He speaks in verse 10 that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Certainly the, the wars that he's mentioned already there in verse 9. It's a natural expression of a fallen race, a fallen humanity that cannot live with itself in peace. We cannot live with other men and women and peoples and societies in peace. There is hatred and there is strife. There is fighting. There is warring. So he speaks of in, in Matthew 24, you'll say, he said there will be wars. And if there aren't wars, there will be rumors of wars. So there's going to be just this warring tension throughout the church age. And in Matthew 24, verse 12, he says there, and Matthew just gives us a fuller account of what Jesus teaches here, that lawlessness increases. There is an increase in lives that are marked by godlessness. And the reality is that there is yet to be a time of worldwide peace. There's always, there have always been wars, and I think it is safe to say that there will not be a worldwide peace. Simply because a worldwide peace is only possible when hearts are submitted to the rule and the reign of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And as long as men are at war with Christ, they will be at war with one another. And so there will not be this worldwide peace brought forth by men figuring out how to live together. Secondly, we see that there are the upheavals of the natural type, natural disasters. He speaks here in verse 11 of earthquakes and plagues and famines. That These things will be occurring throughout the church age. And such natural disasters, what do they reveal to us? They reveal to us a creation that is in turmoil itself. A creation that rises in destructive power against mankind and against the creatures for which it was created. And we see that, don't we, even in our day. 
See the power of tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes. They say we're on a we're on course this year for just a record in the number of recorded tornadoes. And the damage that you see that's so widespread. It's as though that the creation is in is in revolt against those for whom it was created. And such is the consequence of man's fall, isn't it? We understand that. That because of the fall of man, recorded all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, that there is a curse placed upon the earth, that creation has indeed been affected by the fall of man. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, where there Paul speaks of creation being subjected to futility. It speaks of creation being set free from its slavery to corruption. And it speaks of creation with groans and suffers and the pains of childbirth. That when Christ returns, that it's as though the creation itself, the, the earth itself, will breathe a great sigh of relief at last. When all the, all the consequences of the fall of man will be eradicated. So even creation has been affected by man's sin. Again, these are the marks of the New Testament church age. It's an age of upheaval. It's an age of, of wars. Those upheavals made by man and those upheavals of the creation against its creatures. They're described in verse 11 as terrors and great signs from heaven. But what is the word of application for us here? And I think it is this, that we do not be misled. Do not be misled in the days of perilous occurrences. There are those who would claim to be interpreters of specific terrors and specific tragedies that occur. And they would claim that these are signs of the immediate end. And I must say, with all grace and charity to these, that they have no biblical warrant for such a claim. They have nothing unless they would claim some supernatural revelation to them to make such a claim. And if they make the claim on that basis, then I'm going to steer more clear of them. And those who are obsessed with Placing and interpreting events on the prophetic calendar that we are, they were advanced in the prophetic calendar because such and such event has taken place, and there's no biblical warrant for these conclusions. You know, some have tried to look at uh, the particular tragedy and say, "Well, here, this is this is the sign. Here, this is the sign that it's it's about to all come to an end." Don't be misled. These are descriptive of all of the New Testament church age. That it, there will be days of perilous occurrences. Will there be an increase in intensity? I think it would be safe to say so. But to what degree, we do not know. And so for us to look and to simply say, well, we know that these things are occurring more than they used to. Well, they could occur with much greater frequency for all we know. So we must be careful 
and interpreting the signs as we see them. We have no biblical warrant for making an assessment. Well, this this is a clear indication. This is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And most of the time, I just want to say, well, show me the chapter and the verse that this is fulfilling. Where is it? It's fulfilling what prophecy? What prophecy do you speak of? Do not be misled. And occasionally there are even those who would be prophets of peace. The peace will come. Peace is coming. And I would reassert to you that peace will not come apart from the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. So the believer's response to these things, to these terrors, these perilous occurrences as they arise, and they can be quite terrifying, can they not? I mean, can you imagine being in such a place? Perhaps some of you have. I've never wanted to go to California. I don't want to go somewhere I feel likely that the earth is going to start moving under my feet. But we're not immune here, are we? And just the ordeal there in China, which we've been and praying for you guys because we didn't know where things were, where you were. But uh, the ordeal there in China of just the thousands, just where the, the earth is shaking. They are terrifying. Jesus' words, verse 9 again. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Do not be frightened. This is how things will be, but this is also God's world under God's rule. It is His to preserve. It is His to bring to destruction. Don't worry that it seems as though it's out of control. It's not. It's not. We live in a fallen world and we see the effects of living, living in this fallen world in creation. And we long for a better place. And so we have the assurance and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth that will no longer have the scars of sin. I tell you, it keeps you longing for that, doesn't it? There's just no stability here in this life. And I'm not talking about the earth shaking either. <laughs> There's no real stability here. I mean, how stable is our economy right now? All it takes is the continued escalation of fuel prices. It's going to touch everything we've got. How stable are we financially? You hear of people who are, well, I'm ready for retirement. I've got all my funds set up. And then you hear of these companies that have gone bankrupt because of men in the high places. They've taken the funds and they've used it for their own purposes. How stable are we, folks? There's a new heaven and there's a new earth. There's another place. There's our hope. There's our stability. And what God offers to us. And the only degree of stability that we have and that we need here for this is this. That God is faithful. And He is my Father and I will trust Him. That's our stability. It is in Christ. These are days of perilous, perilous occurrences. Second, we see that these will be days of persecution opportunities. Jesus addresses this issue with a sense of immediacy in verse 12. Again, bringing it due to the disciples here. But before all these things, these things that have been, we've described here in verses 10 and 11, before all these things, guys, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you 
to the synagogues. So we're here, we're very much caught up in the immediate sense. I mean, the synagogues, for all practical purposes, were lost as any place of influence after the year 70 A.D. They were delivered to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then verse 13. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. There will be days of persecution opportunities. Before all these things, verse 12, lay their hands on you, delivering you to the synagogues before kings and governors, each of these specifically fulfilled in the lives of the disciples. And we see many of these fulfilled, for example, in the book of Acts, as they are brought before kings and governors. But how is or how are such persecutions to be viewed How are they supposed to be evaluated and interpreted? Are they to believe that we we aren't going to win this after all? That we're on the wrong side? That evil will prevail? Jesus says, no, here's how you should view this in verse 13. This is an opportunity. It will lead to an opportunity. This is where the persecutions will take you. It's the opportunity for your testimony. It's the opportunity, the testimony of your life to experience and to demonstrate God's faithfulness in verse 14. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. You don't know what's coming, but I do. I will prepare you. You will be prepared. The opportunity for your testimony to even speak by a divine intervention. Verse 15. Note what he says here. And it's very emphatic here. The usage of the of the pronoun with, with the verb. The verb in the Greek language, as with many languages, makes the pronoun unnecessary. So that when the pronoun is added, and it is here in the Greek, it's to show an emphasis. So when Jesus says there in verse 15, He is saying, For I myself will personally give you utterance and wisdom. I will do it. I, even I, will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or to refute. Note here, it's not a promise to escape suffering, is it? But it is an occasion where truth will be clearly proclaimed and your opponents, they will not be able to resist it, nor are they able to refute it. In other words, they're going to hear truth proclaimed and inside they're going to know in their hearts what they're saying is right and it's true, but I cannot own it. I must continue to renounce it. They know they're wrong. Because they stand, they stand against the very words of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ says, I will give you utterances. I will give it to you. I will not be leaving you. I will not leave you to your own resources. I'm not leaving you as those who have been trained and equipped. And I'm going to back off and see how well you do. I will be with you there. I will be giving you words to say. So that when you speak, they're not hearing merely the words of men. They're encountering the words of God. And what man could stand and resist or refute the truth of 
of God. And that's what's going to be happening for them. It's an opportunity for your testimony. The places of opportunity is given to us in verse 12 in the synagogues and the prisons before the kings and the governors but also the people of persecution, verses 16 and 17. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. Betrayal. Put to death even either by the hand of or by the testimony of even your family members. And that has certainly been the witness of church history. And even to the present day. It saddens my heart, even I think of even the present day, of those that I know who have been in ministry for a number of years and laid down their lives for years of ministry to people and have some of those whom they've given themselves to come back and become their greatest critics and in fact their enemies. And so often it is the case that those who would appear to be the dearest of friends, those who love us the most, are willing with the right price and especially if it means to the saving of their own neck. Willing to betray followers of Christ. Jesus says that will take place. Don't be surprised. After all, this is what they have done with me. I've been treated this way. Would you expect to be treated better? Because what do we see? We see unrighteousness rising up against righteousness. And the more righteous the life of the people of God, the greater the outrage of those who are unrighteous, those who are unbelievers. And they will rise up to attempt to destroy. It's a day of opportunity. It's a day of opportunity that is to be seized. And many times I cannot help but marvel, as we've mentioned on various occasions of of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who refuse silence. <laughs> they just refuse to be quiet about the fact that they've been born again by the Spirit of God. Won't you just keep it to yourself? <laughs> and they can't do it. They won't do it. And it's not that they're being obnoxious, it's they have a compassion that Christ be known to their fellow countrymen. They want their fellow countrymen to be worshipers of God as well. And so they continue to share Christ, to be exposed by their testimony. And they see it as a day of opportunity. It's an opportunity that our brothers and our sisters around the world have seized and are seizing. And an opportunity that we do well to learn from, is it not? It's important that we see persecution in such a light. To see being persecuted for the and it makes it very clear, incidentally, it is for my name's sake. It's not because you're an obnoxious personality, it's because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that you are hated, that you are persecuted. It's an opportunity to just demonstrate the power of God's grace against such persecutions. This is the testimony of what grace does in a heart that when persecution comes, that our that we are drawn near unto the into the arms of God, cast firmly into his, his loving arms and kept by him. The testimony of God's grace. How many would not if there was no reality of grace, I would not quickly abandon any claim of Christ if it could spare them the pain and the suffering. It's a testimony of the grace of God, isn't it? That grace at work in the heart of the children of God that they, that they continue in light of the most horrific persecutions. And it's also an important as a testimony to see that the church, the people of God, the church progresses and it advances in the midst of such turmoil and hardship and persecution. That it's not dependent upon peace and comfort and convenience and being liked and all those things that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ goes on and is built upon the blood of those who have been martyred for the cause of Christ. What a testimony. But I wonder how true that is of the church of the West especially. How much we are spared because of our history. And then wondering too, you know, just how quickly, how quickly will these things be taken from us? How quickly will there be a generation that rises up and just finally says, enough is enough, be done with it all. We've already got a significant number who are there. Do we see it as our day of opportunity? Or do we see it as the indication that perhaps it's just not the right time I should keep my mouth shut? Days of persecution opportunities. Third, we see the mark of the New Testament church days, church age. The days of persevering oversight. Days, I'm sorry, days of preserving oversight. I went back and forth with preservation and preserving on this, as many of in Reformed circles have, and we deal of with preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints. Amidst such a forecast of the persecution, Jesus here gives great words of assurance. And this is where the people of God, we must land here. We don't land and we don't end with this, these thoughts and these fears of, of persecution. We could become obsessed with that, couldn't we? And then the life becomes all about doing all that we can to preserve ourselves from that. But that's not our stopping point. We don't stop with such things because Jesus doesn't stop there. And He knows the nature of men. He knows even His disciples hear this. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. Then He comes with the words of Comfort 18. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. Now, how can we interpret 
that. Especially in light of the context when he has just indicated that there is going to be great persecutions. There is going to be martyrdom for the cause of Christ. Now how does he say here in verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. I think we have to consider that here he is using figurative or even a proverbial form of speech. So that hearing the words of not a hair of your head is going to be hurt will be understood as them understanding that there will be no loss that is experienced and even in the most minute manner by God's people. God knows every aspect of our being. He knows every molecule, every atom of our body, of our existence. And there will be no loss that you will experience in things that are significant. God's care, God's keeping grace is such that His enemies will be unable to claim any measure of success against the people of God. They will think that they have come and destroyed. And God says, you've not touched the hair of the head. Cannot touch them. Because they may come and destroy body, but they cannot touch the soul. And so Jesus' words at another occasion, do not fear those who are able to destroy only the body. And after that, they can do nothing. But you fear Him who is able to destroy body and also to cast your soul into hell. There's where your fear needs to be. A right fear toward God, not toward men. Not to be consumed with terror about the the limited success that men might have against the people of God. And then we see here in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. The preserving power of God assures the believer of eternal safety. And the context here of verse 19 makes it very clear that he is not thrusting the responsibility upon the disciples to keep going, keep going, keep going. It's up to you. But he casts the disciples' hope in God. Verse 18. Not a hair of your head is going to be perished. Where's your focus? It's on God. Verse 19, by your endurance you'll gain your lives. Where's your focus? It's on God. God's preserving oversight of His people in the midst of days of persecution and suffering. So that persecution is not a time to be looked at nor regarded as a time of being abandoned or forgotten by God or by Christ. Heed the words of Hebrews 13.5 where the writer uses, quoting from the Old Testament, I will never desert you or forsake you. In fact, times of persecution are times of greater grace, times of, of a greater measure of sustaining by His strength For His glory. It shows us the greatness of God. When we would be crushed by much less things. We would throw in the towel. Much sooner. So we labor. And we strive. And we work. 
as the people of God, but it is always with an understanding. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it is always with an understanding that all of my labor, all of my striving, and all of my working is in vain except God be in it. Except it be of His grace within me. So we look to the days the disciples looked here and whatever may be coming, that God is with us. God keeps us. What hope do I have that I will persevere to the end? And the only hope that I have is the power of God, the preserving grace of God. That God will keep His people. So in one sense... Jesus' prediction here of coming days is, is not a very pretty, it's not a very attractive picture. And you can look at it from one sense and say it's not a lot of comfort in that. All these bad things going to be happening in the world, all this upheaval, all this persecution going to be there. But the reminder here is that with all the perils and the persecutions, He is present. He is preserving His people. So that our hearts and our hope is cast upon the Lord. Days of perilous occurrences. Things that would terrify the natural man. Don't be terrified. God is in control. Days of persecution and opportunities. Seize the opportunity. The opportunity as a testimony. To testify by your life of the grace of God and by your lips of God's work of grace in your heart. In days of persevering oversight, God is faithful. He is with us through whatever comes. So I don't have to have the latest book. I don't have to have the newest chart that's got it all mapped out from here to here across the wall. I don't have to have all that laid out so all right, here it's coming. I don't have to know all that. It's not that important. I don't think it's going to be known to us. I just need to know this. God is faithful. He's faithful. And He will keep me. Because I can look at any of that and think, I'm never going to make it. I won't make it through any of that, man. I'll, I can see it now. Pastor denies the faith. But by the preserving power of God who's with us. May we be prepared for these things by having our hope, our hearts set upon God and set upon heaven. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank You that You do give to us instruction regarding such matters that we know that these are not things that are any measure of surprise to You. You told us that you know of these things, and by your telling and your knowing, you certainly are greater than any of these things. And Lord, we ask for such a preserving grace. Oh Lord, that we be faithful. 
that we be faithful not only unto death, that we be faithful today and tomorrow. We thank you, O God, that you know our weakness, that you know our absolute need of you, and that you meet us. So take these truths we ask, apply them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.